So I hope everybody had a good Thanksgiving. We will um, ha- I'll hopefully or planning to have our bingo ready for Wednesday for our ultimate class. Today is our penultimate class. <clears throat> hopefully some of y'all are still working on your um, your uh, fun exam. <laughs> but we want to sort of begin wrapping things up uh, today with a lesson that I, I did spend most of the day yesterday working on or improving, you may not think it's an improvement, but I think it is, from last year. <clears throat> the purpose of Theology of the Body was to establish an adequate anthropology. And what John Paul II intended to do, and he says as much as we'll see today, was in establishing the anthropology, was set up what we would call a triptych, a three-part analysis. First was what we began with of Adam and Eve before the fall, that analysis of in the beginning, pre-lapsarian man, man in the state of grace, what that would have been like. Then we turn to man fallen and redeemed in Christ, living in the mystery of redemption. But there is a third part that we didn't really address, but we're going to talk to today, and I put it towards the end, even though it doesn't come at the end of Theology of the Body, um, it actually comes right before the section on the sacrament, is man in the resurrection, looking towards our final end, to where we're going. To have a proper understanding of the human person, we have to look at man before the fall, fallen and redeemed in Christ, and then in the resurrection, in his resurrected body, and in his participation in the Trinitarian life in heaven. And so what I'm going to do today is try to draw from ideas from Theology of the Body. It's from that section uh, that comes right after Purity of Heart and the analysis of those Pauline passages and right before Celibacy for the Sake of the Kingdom. Of course, it comes before Celibacy for the Sake of the Kingdom uh, because celibacy is living heaven on earth. That's eschatological sign. So <laughs> it'll be generally formed around what John Paul II has to say, but I'm going to draw in a few other insights and then try to land the plane. We talked about this last year. I think we talked about this last year, that, that fundamental question of why are we Christians? Does anybody remember what we talked about? Why are we Christians? Because a man rose from the dead. Amen. Hallelujah. Because of Christ's resurrection, without our resurrect, the Christ's resurrection, our faith is in vain. It's Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 13 to 4. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. As we talked about before, I am not too sure how many Christians really, A, know that the resurrection is central to our belief as Christians, And do they really believe in it and draw from the power of the resurrection? And so we see that the resurrection is not just sort of like an addendum to Christ's crucifixion and death. It is the high point. It is the completion of the paschal mystery of his passage from death to life, where the father receives the sacrifice of the son, pours the spirit on his body, and raises him from the dead. It is a Trinitarian action, uh, but you'll look at that in your Trinitarian or your Christology class. And so John Paul II really focuses on this passage from Paul. God is not a God of the dead, but of the living. He is a God of the living, and he has power to be able to raise Christ's body from the dead, and he has the power to raise our bodies from the dead. And and I think that's the key point as we we look forward to looking at what John Paul II has to say. Yes, Christ is the first fruits. He rose from the dead, and we get to share in his resurrection. And why is that? Why do we get to share in his resurrection? Because of what? You, you You know this. If you don't... Because of what? 
Because of baptism, yes, and the Eucharist, which we'll look at, but primarily because of baptism. And so he is the first fruits. We get to share in it. What John Paul II does is he, he says that basically, if you look at 65, 6, this is in Theology of the Body, that Christ opens up the tree of life to man through the baptism. I mean, through, through the resurrection and through baptism. That we get a share to live eternal life through him. And we begin living it now through the gift of the Spirit. By responding to the promptings of the Spirit, by fanning into flame that which is given to us. But in doing so, it's not lived perfectly. We still have to have that, that dichotomy, that struggle between the flesh and the Spirit. But we're ultimately looking towards the final resurrection, the return of Christ and the last judgment. And with that comes the general resurrection, where we believe our souls will be joined to our bodies and will be judged. There, the final resurrection in relationship to all of the church and how our actions affected other, others, and we will go to heaven or to eternal damnation. And so because of that final end of what we're destined for, this even further uh, anchors our dignity. We have dignity because we're created in the image and likeness of God, dignity because we're redeemed in Christ, and dignity because where we're headed. You know, if I have a painting and I'm sending it to Joseph versus sending it to the Pope, what am I going to want to put more insurance on to make sure it gets there? <clears throat> Not Joseph, sorry. The Pope. Because, sorry, the Pope has more dignity uh, the king or a queen or whatever has more dignity. That's how it works. <clears throat> this is a quote, though, from, from Flannery O'Connor that I, I, I've always liked. It's from one of her letters. I can't remember which one. <clears throat> she says, I'm always astounded at the emphasis the church puts on the body. It is not the soul, she says, that will rise, but the body, glorified. I have always thought that purity was the most mysterious of the virtues, but it occurs to me that it would never have entered the human consciousness to conceive of purity if we were not to look forward to a resurrection of the body, which will be flesh and spirit united in peace in the way they were in Christ. The resurrection of Christ seems the high point of the law of nature. Again, here, O'Connor talking about the, the primacy, the importance of the resurrection, not only Christ's resurrection, but what it sheds light on our own body and our own future resurrection. So what what are, are, are some of the qualities of the resurrected body? Now, you can look at scripture, Jesus walking through walls, having his wounds, all these different types of things. And of course, you could take Thomas and he talks about the impassibility of the body uh, and all these different qualities. But John Paul II also describes some of the qualities in <coughs> theology of the body, basically saying that many of these traits that we saw before the fall are now perfected in Christ and perfected in the share of the resurrection. And what he's going to try to do in theology of the body is explain what some of these traits are, but just like he did in the beginning— he uses human experience. We can use our own human experience to say this is what it would have been like or might have been like before the fall. But he also is going to draw from human experience to say what the fulfillment of the body will look like in the next life, what the resurrected body will look like. So taking a lot of the qualities that we already looked at and just seeing how they may be perfected are fulfilled in the next life. So that's what we're going to kind of do is the rest of the class today, and again, I'm happy to entertain questions, is look over some of these qualities, and particularly not so much as like a class on eschatology, but one specifically on the body, sexual ethics, and some of the qualities that we talked about, particularly when we looked at anthropology. The first and the most important is this. In heaven, you will have your body. Grandma, you know, you're going to hear this. I know the grandma died 
and she's an angel with Jesus in heaven. No, she is not. Okay? And don't go tell some kid that. Like, don't go tell a kid, my, my, my grandma died and she's an angel in heaven. No, you little second grader, she's not. You can't tell the adults that either. Yeah. But, but this, again, kind of reflects that, that it's well-intended. Maybe they think that their soul is like a spiritual angel type thing. I don't know. But hey, listen, we are all moving towards the resurrection. We are going to have a resurrected body. How that's going to happen, what it's going to look like, you can go read Ratzinger's Eschatology. Don't leave seminary without reading Ratzinger's Eschatology. Don't leave se- Y'all don't have a class on Eschatology, do you? Do, n- do not... Uh, I guess so. Don't don't leave seminary without reading that book. Just telling you right now. As I said, so many don't know this, and in a certain sense, just don't believe in the resurrection. So we're going to have a resurrected body, but it's not going to be the same. It's going to be perfected, a little bit different, not exactly the same on Earth. And in Theology of the Body, audience 70, 71, and 72, John Paul II, this is towards the end of this section, draws from 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 49, to talk about Paul and his description of the resurrected body, drawn a lot from his own experience of the risen Christ, basically talking about Christ as the new Adam, the last Adam, the image of the heavenly man, who has this spiritual body, and through his resurrection and our share in his resurrection, we receive the Holy Spirit, which gives powers to our body. And so this this system of corruption that we have in our bodies now sort of comes into contact with this new power of the Spirit that begins to transform us as we move away from the life of the flesh to the life in the spirit. Paul clearly sees that power coming through Christ's resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we live it and are perfected on earth, looking forward to the resurrection. So we're still going to have our bodies. That's the first thing, which I know I probably shouldn't have to reiterate, but we will. It'll be a resurrected body, perfected body, similar to Christ's body. You're not going to die you're not going to be able to suffer. Uh, you, you can walk through walls. Get ready. Yes. Let's get ready to walk through some walls. Exciting. You won't need to eat, but you arguably can eat. The second thing which is also important is this. All right, y'all. Sexual difference will still exist. You're not going to get to heaven and become this amorphous blob. You're not going to become some androgynous being. We will still be in biologically but yet perfected male or female bodies. The difference will not be eradicated. The difference will not be eradicated. Although, John Paul II says, and we can understand this, this difference will be understood, or the sexual difference will be understood in a new and different fashion. John Paul II says it will be newly constituted. I don't know exactly what that means. But can you tell me why, even though we will remain male and female, why it will be different? Because you won't be able to reproduce. Correct. There's no need for reproduction. No need for procreation or generation. Will there be some way for us to enter into communion with each other? Yes, but it will not be genital. It will not be sexual in the way that we understand it now, even though we will remain sexual beings. So sexual difference is still going to exist. And I think particularly for, like, let's say, pagan mythology or pagan way of understanding things that saw difference as bad and that we would all sort of come into this sort of platonic androgynous being. No. Sexual difference is good. It is going to exist. Women will not become men, as the Gnostic Gospels talk about. We are going to have sexual difference. Yes? Maybe I'm jumping the gun and we'll talk about this. But Possibly. There is that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, let me know. You're the teacher. Uh, oh, I will. 
The line Jesus says to the uh, Sadducees, you know, when he's talking about the unit for the kingdom of heaven, they'll be like angels, neither giving uh, into marriage or being. We're getting there. Give me a few minutes. We're getting there. You, you're sharing in that resurrected gift of prophecy, of reading, reading the mind, knowing the future. Yes. So I, I just want to get your thoughts on this. I've heard different people say, like people, the resurrected body. I've heard arguments be like, what age come back, but also say, someone with Down syndrome or I don't know, something like that. Do they come back with their potentiality? Do they come back still with? I, I don't. I, I, that's something I think that you could explore with Dr. Neal. Um, I, I don't know. I'm sure Thomas has something to say. Every all the different theologians. All I would say is this: that Christ, in his resurrected body, still has his wounds, but they're glorified. So somehow, those wounds, imperfections, whether they be physical, emotional, or potentially moral, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. The what helped us get to heaven, what perfected, what weakness perfected us, will be glorified. So, but the thing is, is in heaven, remember, you're going to have beatific knowledge. So you're going to share in God's knowledge. So the brain won't be as hampered in the same way. Uh, so you'll have knowledge, but will those, quote unquote, imperfections still be there? Quite possibly. I, I don't know, but something to think about. The big thing that John Paul II focuses on, though, is what he calls the spiritualization of the body. But even though you're going to have a body, it is going to become spiritualized. And he focuses on this in 66.5 to 67.2. Basically, what he means by this, and of course, if, if you read it, is that since the fall, and even as a result of the redemption because of concupiscence, the, the body and soul, even though we are a substantial unity, sort of war against each other, the spiritual versus the flesh. But in, in the next life and in the resurrection, the body and soul will not be seen in opposition, but the body will be perfectly subject to the soul and that spiritual dimension of the human person. So this is 67.1. Eschatological man will be free from this opposition. He, put that, he puts that in quotes. In the resurrection, the body will return to perfect unity and harmony with the spirit. Man will no longer experience the opposition between what is spiritual and what is bodily in him. So again, this is more than just body and soul. This is more flesh and spirit. Spiritualization signifies not only that the spirit will master the body, but I would say that it will also fully permeate the body and the powers of the spirit, uh, this is small s, not capital S spirit, will permeate the energies of the body. That's interesting, the energies of the body. Maybe this is what, what's his face that orthodox theologian was talking about. So it, it's somehow, it's not just going to be that they're in harmony, but the spiritual, I don't know, it's like a, like water in a sponge. Imagine that your, your water is the spirit and your body is the sponge. It's going to get into every pore. It's going to transform it. 66.5, spiritualization of the somatic nature, that is, by another system of powers within man. This is a, this other system of powers that comes from the full actualization of the spirit and the resurrection will signify a new submission of the body to the spirit. So how, how do we begin? This is going to be in heaven. So this is going to be that balance, that spiritualization. We will be body that is spiritualized. How do we begin living that on earth? What would John Paul II say? How do we begin achieving that balance between body and spirit and flesh and spirit on earth? What does that look like? We've talked about it a little bit. It's self-mastery, the virtue of purity, where we move towards the freedom of the gift by not allowing our passions, not allowing our body to dominate our spirit. This is what chastity tries to do. And so you can read that whole section and he sort of, again, 
and what Ratzinger could have done in about two paragraphs takes about five pages. But <laughs> that's his that's his style. He's the he's circling. <laughs> he's, 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 he's bracketing, he's analyzing the phenomena. So the next thing, besides the shock that people receive that there's no, that we will have bodies in heaven, is that there is no marriage in heaven. What do you mean? I won't be married to my spouse. Some people, they're pretty happy about that. But, <laughs> Leave me alone for all eternity. <laughs> well, that's not exactly how it works. But, so Matthew 22:30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, again, as Josh's question was, I think some people might interpret it that we will be angels in heaven. Maybe that's why they understand or believe we're in angels. And so just that angels can't marry. That's not how the church has understood it. It's because, as we've already talked about, there's no need of procreation in heaven. But what else is not necessary in heaven that is necessary on earth, or at least in the Christian sacramental structure from what we discussed? No, I mean, you're going to be constantly sanctified by your union with the Trinity. But not only is procreation not in heaven, but what else is not necessary in heaven? The special union of the sexual act between the spouses? No. You know the answer to this question. So everyone's part of Trinitarian communion, so you no longer need like marriage to be a symbol of it? Not of that, but of something else. You don't need a spousal analogy? You don't, yeah. It's perfected. So what, what the, the unit of man and woman of Christ in the church, you're to a certain extent correct, but you don't stop being the image of God. The Imago Dei still continues. You participate in a deeper way. But the sacraments are not in heaven. Because they don't point to the deeper reality. You're going to experience the union of Christ and the church. This is, but in heaven, though, I, it's hard for so many people to understand. What do you mean I won't be married to my spouse? And you try to explain the eschatological significance. Good luck. <laughs> but as we'll see, we will have this deep communion, or what John Paul II will call the perfect intersubjectivity uh, in heaven. How that will be lived out in the body, we, we, we don't fully know. But you are going to be able to know a stranger better than you would ever know anybody on earth. How will you, do, how will you have that knowledge in heaven? Through the beatific vision, you're going to be able to have some as much as your little microchip of a brain can tap into the mainframe. You will see things as God sees things. You will know things as God sees things. But with the people that you are close to on earth, and even I'd say with the saints that you are close to, that you chose or that chose you, <clears throat> there I think there can be a special relationship um, because you'll still have the memories and experiences on earth. So yeah, I think those memories and experiences will transfer. And yeah, we had, whether or not you believe in these near-death experiences or whatever, but people see their loved ones in the next life. So you'll recognize them, they'll recognize you, you just won't be married to them. But there's gonna be somehow a deeper knowledge, love and connection. But what is going to be the, the most important thing, at least in sort of John Paul II, is the perfection of the spousal meaning of the body. All right? The perfection of the spousal meaning of the body. And this is, this is I mean, I think a really, I think a genuine insight here, where we talk about this perfection of our somatic powers, this ability to give of ourselves totally, there will be no hindrance because the body will be subject to the spirit. And so there will be that full freedom and spontaneity of the gift. The full freedom and spontaneity of the gift. Because, as I said, there, there's no opposition. The question, though, is, this sounds great, but 
who will we give ourselves to? Who are we giving ourselves to in heaven? God. And who else? Communion with God and who else? Each other. other, The communion of the saints. So what John Paul II does is he is here in Theology of the Body going to take the spousal meaning of the body, that the human person is meant for gift, and interpret the beatific vision and the communion of the saints through that. That both of these are perfections of the gift. And along with it, a perfection of the Imago Dei. Because it's in that sexual difference, in the gift of self, that we live out the Imago Dei. This is so central to John Paul II's argument, and something which I think can produce a lot of fruit. Particularly if there's something that we don't believe in Christ's resurrection... People today just, I don't find, are excited about heaven. Because they think heaven, you're going to be on a cloud with, with a little harp. He's an angel. Or, or, you know... I was one Well, you will be able to. You'll have that beatific knowledge in heaven. And again, I think in a certain sense, it, not only do we have the problem of people thinking everybody makes it to heaven, you know... Or that when you get to heaven, I hope heaven's, you know, when I die, I hope heaven's one big pond with a bunch of bass and sakale, and I'm just going to fish all all the time. Well, I mean, remember that heaven's and the earth, the, the, the world is not going to be annihilated. So chances are you might be able to come to the earth. It's going to be reviewed. You might be able to travel through the universe. Who knows? I got no idea. But I, I, I remember... When I was first ordained a priest, I went I went to console a lady whose son had died in a motorcycle accident, um, and on the back was his concubine. After leaving the wife and people at church, and he died in this horrific accident. And uh, again, who knows what happened? I mean, I, but I remember she said, "Oh, I, I know the little." Little Billy's in heaven cooking a supper with Jesus. I thought to myself, cooking may be part of what's happening. I didn't say that. I didn't I didn't say that, but I said, well, I really think we really ought to be having some masses said for the repose of Billy's soul and his girlfriend's soul. So... That, but that's how it is. People don't get it. When they see heaven is is just this terrestrial paradise. So, but the key is how this gift of self is lived in heaven. Where John Paul II is going to see heaven in the lens of a reciprocal gift of self to God. So again, what we normally describe heaven is the beatific vision, and so there's the sight. We see God as he is, and that vision, that contemplation is beatifying. And yeah, okay, it's true. And, but that's one sort of way of explaining something that goes beyond our complete comprehension. And I think for a lot of people sitting in, as much as they love to sit and stare at their phone, sitting and staring at God for all eternity seems like it's going to get boring. But John Paul II will say that actually he kind of alludes to in 68.2 that the beatific vision isn't so much us sort of statically looking at God, but more of the contemplation of the Trinitarian communion of persons. So we're watching for all eternity. We're contemplating this exchange of love and gift. But... The real key, though, comes when he says that heaven is not just us looking at God and somehow receiving his image, but it is the perfection of sponsality, of God giving himself to us in Christ. And so because if we're the image of God and God is a Trinitarian persons and he's total gift of self, 
It is God, the Trinity, exactly how this is done, we don't really know, is given himself to us. Not just knowledge of him, but he's giving himself, and somehow we receive that gift, and then we give ourselves back to him. Correct. It is a circle, but it's actually more than a circle, as we'll see if we bring in John of the Cross, because again, this is all just ways of understanding it. So this is the ecstasy of heaven, ecstasies, out of yourself, out of a static, stable place. That God is the initiator. He gives himself to us, we, and we receive that gift. We're beatified through the gift, and for all eternity, we're exchanging the spousal gift with the Trinity. So the real key passage here is 68.3. <clears throat> The reciprocal gift of oneself to God, <clears throat> a gift in which man will concentrate and express all the energies of his own personal and at the same time psychosomatic subjectivity, will be the response of God's gift of man himself to man. So God initiates. And the reciprocal gift of self by man, a gift that will become completely and definitively beatifying as the response worthy of a personal subject to God's gift of himself, the virginity, or rather the virginal state of the body, will manifest itself completely as the eschatological fulfillment of the spousal meaning of the body. And the specific sign and authentic expression of personal subjectivity as a whole. So in our bodies, our resurrected bodies, we're going to be giving ourselves personally. Now this, this phrase, the virginal state or the virginity of the body. What exactly does he mean by that? I guess, in a certain sense, the purity that we'll have, the fact that there's no marriage in heaven, and that we belong totally to God. He doesn't explain it fully, but I think we can understand it that way. In this way, then, the eschatological situation in which they will take neither wife or husband has its solid foundation in the future state of the personal subject when, as a consequence of the vision of God face to face, a love of such depth and power of concentration on God himself will be born in the person that it completely absorbs the person's whole psychosomatic subjectivity. And you are going to be so immersed in that gift yourself with God, you ain't going to have time for another spouse. There will be a perfect inner subjectivity of all of us, but it's going to be this total concentration. We are going to belong totally to God. Again, something to contemplate. And, and I think you can see an influence here, and I'm not an expert in this, of John of the Cross. Now, we know that John Paul II, very influenced by Carmelite spirituality. Um, I mean, he wrote his whole thesis on the act of faith in John of the Cross, where basically the act of faith, God is not an object but a person. That we, 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 It's a relation with a person, not some intellectual concept of a thing or an object. And, and so John of the Cross, and again, I'm not an expert on his eschatology here, basically says that in the resurrection in heaven, we are united to the life of the Trinity through the body of Christ, which I think is very valid. He's the head with the body. And our participation in the Trinity is actually the spiration of the Spirit. So as the Son, because we're one with the Son, as the Son receives the Father, gives himself back, the Father and the Son together spirate the Spirit. So we will, because of our union with the Son, Participate in the spiration of the Spirit. Again, these are mysterious things, but the point is, and it's something that Balthazar brings up in his last thing of the Theodrama, that heaven cannot be static. He says, for spiritual creatures, eternal life in God cannot consist in merely beholding God. In the first place, God is not an object but a life that is going on eternally and yet ever anew. Secondly, the creature is meant ultimately to live not over against God, but in him. I think that's key. It's not like here's God, here we are observing him. We're called to participate in 
the very life and communion of the Trinity. And this is a much more dynamic understanding that, of course, is rooted in the gift of self. But the next point that God, that John Paul II makes is this gift of self, this reciprocal gift of self, leads to a phrase that we should all know by now, divinization. We become like unto God. Theology of the Body 67.3. Participation of the divine nature. Participation in the inner life of God himself. Penetration and permeation of what is essentially human by what is essentially divine. This is divinization. We don't become God, but we share in his nature. Through union with Christ, through that reciprocal gift of self. It's theosis in the, in the Eastern term. We become like God. This is deep union with him. We're divinized. We're perfected. Our personal subjectivity is not destroyed, but it is completely immersed. We enter into it. And that's the question. Well, could someone choose to leave heaven? I mean, there's still freedom, but you're so drawn into the mystery, you never leave. I was like like looking at something so beautiful or eating a delicious steak. Why would you give up that delicious steak to eat a McDonald's hamburger? You just wouldn't. You could be free to. Granted, God is not a steak. <laughs> if he was, he'd be he'd be probably like medium rare. I don't know. Yes. Delicious. A little butter, garlic <laughs> butter. Maybe a little. Maybe some. Maybe some seared foie gras on the top. Yeah. Well, Satan's well done because he's always burning. That's right. <laughs> Anyhow, so we become divinized, but this communion with God also, as we said, leads to a communion of the saints. And so John Paul II is going to see it through the gift of self what he calls the perfect intersubjectivity of all. That we're going to be united and we're going to have a way of giving of ourselves. What that's going to look like, I don't don't fully know, but we will live in that deeper communion in the kingdom of heaven. But, But here's the thing, though, is again, so... This is where it becomes important to look at, like, okay, well, this understanding heaven shows what celibacy or chastity on earth could look like. If you don't understand, if you don't understand heaven and what the gift of self is, particularly perfected in the next life, then I don't know if you could fully understand celibacy for the sake of the kingdom. And maybe that's part of it, is if we approach the kingdom as non-resurrected entities, that we're angels, or we're just sitting there watching God like he's the big TV, then, then can our gift of self on earth really be perfected? And I think this is kind of why he puts virginity for the sake of the kingdom after the eschatologic, eschatological section. Again, these are my own thoughts there. But this is the point that I, though, want to make about this as it relates to our own spiritual life. And we've talked about this, that there's really no way to live out a Catholic sexual ethic or this meaning of the body unless we have a spiritual life. Impossible. It's going to be rules that crush us. And that need to, we've already seen to balance that the moral and the spiritual can't be separate. They're connected to each other as we live out our identity. But we, we, we all talk about, or we say, you know, don't you just want to be with God in heaven? And I can't wait to get to heaven to see God face to face and to see my loved ones. And that's all great. Or we should want to spend time in prayer on, in life because it's going to be one big prayer in heaven, which it is. I'm not denying that. 
what is the, I say the problem, what is the, the weakness of that way of perceiving not only prayer, but of heaven? And you can even potentially say there's a theological weakness to that. What do y'all think? Yes. It just doesn't give us the sort of like comprehensive guidance that the proper vision of heaven can. Right? Like it gives us these little bits of it, but it doesn't inform like a more holistic world. True, but <laughs> mark that down. I mean, like there's some aspect of us just being like in the valley of tears and the imperfect and the you know all these things that are less than heaven so if we just say like, oh just gonna be this for longer there's something a little bit sad you know if you include all the earthly suffering you know all that's not gonna just go into heaven it's gonna be pet better and, and perfect you true but we could take the argument we made from last year where the when we looked at the cross that actually the cross is that christ suffered while he had the division so our suffering on earth our sharing the cross can be a side of that. I'm going to tell you what I think it is. And I'm then going to give you a long quote from Balthazar that, that sort of explains it. It's putting the primary initiative on the creature. I want to be with God. I want to experience time in heaven. Who is the primary initiator? God is. It is God who wants to spend eternity with us. That's the real mystery. We should want to spend eternity with him, but it is God who desires. It doesn't make any sense. But then again, this is why love is the whole root of salvation. He doesn't have to. For some reason, he loves us enough to become a man that he desires to spend time with us here on earth. And he desires to spend eternity with us in heaven. So, so listen to, to what Balthazar says. This is from his little book, Who is a Christian? The farther one looks, the more this being with, I don't know what the German phrase would be, appears to be the prevailing form of Christ's life on earth. He begins his existence in the womb of his mother, who has declared her yes to the word of God. He spends his youth in the bosom of a family, which he leaves for a couple of days in order to linger among the teachers, listening and questioning. He begins his public life with the forming of a, common, a, 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 a group of disciples. He is transfigured in a community of disciples. He is transfigured in front of three of these disciples together with Moses and Elijah and shown in anguish in front of the same three disciples on the Mount of Olives. He mounts the cross with two criminals who hang on the right and on the left of him. But here's the point here. Even in his resurrection, he is not alone. But when the graves are open on Good Friday, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and came out of their tombs after his resurrection, and they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when after his resurrection, he walks and talks with the disciples on the country road to Emmaus, he manifests to the end his habitual desire to be with them. So, if Christ is the revelation of the Father, the ultimate revelation of God, and his whole existence was not spent in codependency, but in a being with humanity, why would all of a sudden, when he gets to heaven, said, I'm tired of being with these ants, or these creatures, or whatever? No, he desires to be with us, even for eternity. And I think that becomes a big part of the focus, why we don't desire heaven, we don't think about these eschatological things, and why we don't think about it on earth. He desires to be with us in our bodies. He wants to spend eternity with us. Look at the prodigal son. If you see that as we talked about as sort of like this parable that describes heaven, the Father's house is the big celebration. It's the big feast. It's the communion. It's the meal. He wants his son to come in. He'll do whatever it takes, but he won't force you to come in. You choose to say, I am sitting out here. 
but he desires us to be with him. And so thinking about that, that the Lord really wants, he invites everybody to the wedding feast. Hey, I want you to come hang out with me. I want you to come be with me. Why? Not because, I mean, of anything, he doesn't have to, because he loves us. He delights in us. He enjoys being in our presence. So that's the thing. That's what prayer is. Go to prayer. Why? Because even for five minutes, imagine... You get you have a friend that lives out of town and you get to see that friend for five minutes a year. You are going to be excited, even for a person that you love or you care about. Your parents love hearing from you, maybe even if you call for five minutes because you delight in that. Let's 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 take Mr. Zeldin as an example. Do you do you love hearing from and seeing your daughter? Absolutely. Even for five minutes. You're going to take that a little bit. And so if if he, as a earthly father, delights in even five minutes, imagine how the Lord delights in being with us, even for five minutes. The more time we want to spend, we don't have to be perfect. Does your daughter come to you sometimes and she's all full of emotions and distracted and aggravated? (laughs) She's always just so exuberant decided to see you. But even when she's not, you're still excited to see her. Hypothetically. But that's the point. If God is revealing himself as a father, that's the thing. And so all this stuff about gifted. So he doesn't want to spend time with us. He wants to give himself to us. He wants to say yes. He wants to shower us in the next life and on earth. Because we talked about we begin living the Beatitudes on earth. Even though they may manifest themselves as suffering and manifest themselves as the cross. The great saints have been able to see in the joy of the cross and in the joys that come, that, that's the Beatitudes. It's the inverse. It's blessed are you when you mourn and when you're poor in spirit. And this is how it's manifested. But then finally, heaven as sort of spousal and, I guess, liturgical Eucharistic. And I'm sure you all have all studied this about how the book of Revelation is... Um, a big, a big liturgy. It's a big mass, which of course makes you think if heaven's a big mass and you don't like to go to mass on earth. So it is, first of all, the wedding supper of the lamb. Read Revelation 9, 19, 6 to 9. It's where the bride and the, and the, and the lamb come together. It's a big wedding feast. So the spousal imagery, which began in Adam and Eve, was in the middle we're there in the prophets, there in the Song of Songs, there in the Christ the Bridegroom, there in Ephesians 5, there now in Revelation, the spousal mystery is perfected. And so we will have sorry, the spousal nuptial dimension to heaven. But it's also, of course, liturgical, where the, this is the whole Scott Hans, the Lamb's Supper, you can read other documents that will point out to that reality that we participate in on earth in the mass in the heavenly liturgy it, it comes down with this wedding supper of the lamb is in the mass but the key point is what is that we share in the resurrection we begin to share in this life now not just through baptism but through the eucharist so i one of my favorite little things when i i've taught sacraments before Maybe we talked about this last year, I don't remember, but we'll talk about it now. I love this little question. Imagine it's the Last Supper, and that before they go out to the Mount of Olives, Jesus realizes that he's consecrated too many hosts. He had one extra. Unfortunately, John the Evangelist had a pix. And so he says, hey, I'm going to put the little consecrated host in the pix, and then um, I'm going to go out. We're going to go pray. When Jesus, in his physical body, died on the cross, would he have died sacramentally in that host? No. No. Why? Because it's already his resurrected body. Is it? <laughs> so 
At the Last Supper, Christ gave the apostles his resurrected flesh. Any counter-arguments? I'm not giving you the answer right now. I'm going to tell you who will give you the answer. Anybody want to conjecture? I love this thought exercise. This is an old thought exercise. It wasn't leaven. They didn't have any seeds in it. So let's say, like, today, when you go to Mass, do you receive the resurrected flesh of Christ? Yes. Yes, so you share the resurrection. So that's the thing is, we know, yes, we receive the crucified and risen flesh of Jesus, the flesh that's filled with the Spirit, so we can receive that resurrected flesh now. But the question is, what would have happened then? He's giving his body. I'm not saying it's not a sacramental body. It's a sacramental body he's giving, but is it is it his resurrected body? Someone over here, what do you think? Daniel has an opinion. Give me your opinion, Daniel. <laughs> Okay, that's a, that's a possible answer. I'm not going to give you the answer today. <laughs> however, however, and again, maybe there are people who could refute this. The answer is out there. The answer is out there. And let's see if you can find it. And if you can't find it for Wednesday, I'll tell you where it is. No. <laughs> I'm not telling you you're wrong. You could be right. I'm not telling. I'm not telling you you're right or wrong, because you both y'all have all made good arguments. I'm not telling you you're right or wrong. I'm telling you the answer is out there. The truth is out there. Yes. But the point is, is regardless, we receive the resurrected. That's not integral to what I'm trying to say. The, the, we receive the resurrected flesh of Jesus in the Eucharist today, which means we could begin living that resurrection on Earth. And everything that we pointed to leads to what we're going to talk about in the last lesson, that we are called to live as male and female in our bodies, holiness on earth. And what does holiness in the body, the sex body, look like? Now that we've had all the different pieces to put together, what does that look like moving forward? Do some research. The answer is out there. I know exactly where the answer is, too, but I'm not going to tell you. But some of you little detectives can figure it out. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It was the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. The Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit.